Welcome back, everybody, to Drive Into the Basket, part of the Basketball Podcast Network. I am Mike, joined as always by Tommy. How you doing, brother? I'm doing okay, man. Uh, been busy lately, kind of distracted, and then uh, everything's kind of started to let up today, which I was excited about. And right as things were starting to slow down, I was looking forward to some downtime. I got a text from my dentist saying that I'm getting my wisdom teeth pulled out in two days, so I have that to look forward to. Wonderful. Been through that before. <laughs> uh, not the funnest time, but. Fortunately, it's only you're only laid out for a couple of days, but uh, yeah, I'm looking not... forward to the ice cream. <laughs> yeah, for me, I, I remember waking up at like 2 a.m. Uh, after the procedure to eat rainbow sherbet and watch an absolutely terrible movie. Uh, whatever the case, uh, this is going to be the first in our draft preview series leading up to the lottery, which is three weeks of the day away from the day we're recording this episode and then leading up to the draft itself as well. Uh, we're going to get to the consensus top three prospects, and then if the Pistons should not end up in the top three, we'll go over some further process. Further prospects will be in their draft range, and also perhaps uh, some guys who the Pistons might have access to should they acquire another first round draft pick. And that's really wide open. Uh, I think Tommy, you and I agree the Pistons have a lot more latitude to obtain another pick in the first than they did last summer when. There was just very little in the way of assets and just first round draft picks last year were so hard to get. Right, so, absolutely. Yeah. There were already rumors of the Pistons being lined up to get, I think, the Pelicans pick before they really messed the Blazers up in that trade. They made the playoffs <laughs> oh, and uh, yeah, they turned that maybe a decent trade into a horrible trade. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. But I think it will be. there's a decent chance that the Pistons will pick up an extra first. And if we get the time, we're certainly going to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, it's very doubtful to know that I know about that until draft nights. But um, you know, it, you never know. Sometimes it breaks before the draft, like the Isaiah Stewart, uh, the deal. Rather than we got the Pistons, the number sixteen pick in the twenty twenty draft for Isaiah Stewart that was broken, I think, a couple days before the draft. Uh, in any case, uh, our first draft pile profile, excuse me, will be on. Uh, well, all these guys I think are interesting, but uh, certainly one. And we'll have a lot to talk about, and that is Paolo Napoleon James Boncaro. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll spare you the Napoleon jokes. I mean, I've been over how, you know, surely this guy's choice of middle name uh, demonstrates his complete lack of regard for democratic governments. Uh, you know, obviously that's a joke, but I thought it was funny. Not a great culture fit, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this guy's going to want to be dictator over the entire team, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah, so... I mean, you have guys like that. I mean, obviously, LeBron is one of them. Uh, he's an effective dictator over the teams he's been part of, uh, at least in Cleveland <laughs> and in LA. You know, obviously not a dictator, but it's a real shame when uh, front offices have to surrender some influence to players. Like you had Kyrie the saying, GM. "Yeah, exactly." You had Kyrie saying, "You know, Katie and I are here, and we're gonna we're gonna play a role in the management of the team," something like that, which is a pretty galling thing to say after how the season went. But. Uh, yeah, that aside, I mean, the playoffs have been great so far, but that's not what we're here to talk about. So Paulo Boncaro, a consensus top three pick, could go anywhere in the top three. Came out of Duke, uh, 6'10 forward, bear in mind that the NCAA typically measures in shoes and everybody rounds up NBA or NCAA, almost everybody anyway. So it's possible that Boncaro is short of 6'9". I think that's probably pretty likely uh, without shoes. The NBA measures without shoes. 6'11 wingspan. Uh, he is, jeez, uh, I've got 215 here. I believe it's 250. Yeah, um, it's closer yeah. to 250. Yeah. Uh, oh, excuse me. Uh, I've actually been looking at the wrong stats here. Yeah, okay. Wingspan, seven foot, 
uh, one half inch. Uh, we put together a series of player cards with a lot of information. Uh, we'll link to those in, I don't know, maybe in this episode. Um, yeah, we've gotten to probably like the top 12 picks so far. Um, in any case, uh, those are going to have just a lot of info about the players, really just a ton of, ton of info. So yes, uh, seven foot uh, and one half inch wingspan, weighs 250, his age of the draft about 19 and a half. So uh, Duke started all 39 games he played, averaged about 17 points, eight rebounds, uh, three assists, you know, one steal, one block, and uh, did that on 48% from the field, about 52.5% from two, 34% from three, and scored at about 62% of the rim. And free throws, not great, 73%. So uh, we're just going to go through his positives, his negatives, uh, what we think are his probable comps, and then his fit with the Pistons, uh, what we believe to be his fit with the Pistons. Uh, so uh, Paulo, I think, is a player. I mean, there are players you have to, there are players who are going to provide value in any system. Jabari Smith's going to provide value in any system, for example. Then there are fit dependent players where their value may uh, differ based on the, st- you know, the state of the team. I believe Paulo is one of those, but uh, let's go into his pluses. So uh, what do you see as his positives? Or what do you see, you know, trade-off, I suppose. Uh, what do you see as the first major positive for Paolo? Yeah, I think the the first thing that you'll see, and this is something that, you know, it really stands out when you watch his highlights, is the footwork. It's excellent. It's the main way that he generates advantages because when you watch him, this is really getting into his negatives, but he does it because he kind of lacks some athleticism. I think specifically here, he's compensating for a lack of burst, but the footwork is genuinely excellent. You know, it's, he's very creative with it. A lot of up fakes and pivots near the rim. And that's kind of how he scores there. And that kind of ties into another positive of his, which is he's a very dynamic scorer. But as far as the footwork goes, you know, he can take the momentum of the ball on an inlet pass and when he's posting up, and he can seamlessly spin into a move towards the basket. So just you know, we, one of the things that we really like about Cade is, is his body control. You know, there are guys who are just capable of generating serious advantages just by you know manipulating their defenders with their body. I think there's a pretty significant difference in the degree to which Paulo is able to do it and the way that Kate is able to do it. But nonetheless, it's, it's a very strong positive and it's one of the things that he does really, really well. And then within that, uh, his jab step is very strong. Yeah. Uh, I just realized we didn't go into a general, a general player profile for Paulo. I think, uh, I think that's just worth establishing before we get into this. So my bet on that, uh, there's not a ton to say about Paulo really, uh, I guess there is a significant amount to say, but as far as how he plays, he's a guy who really hunts mismatches in isolation. He does the vast majority of his attacking from inside, and he does the vast majority of it with the ball in his hands. And sometimes hangs out in the perimeter and shoots, but that isolation offense is really, or really was his bread and butter in the NCAA. Like you said, Tommy, great footwork, uh, definitely, and uh, and good instincts. And I think it's also worth noting that he's he's got that footwork and agility despite his size. Again, he's got a really large frame at about 250 pounds, and he's not overweight by any means. That's a very a pretty well chiseled frame. So definitely, particularly agile for his size and very strong. So, Absolutely, the body control in general is just really really good, and he uses that strength that you mentioned functionally. Like he combines the strength with that footwork to finish in a lot of creative ways. Like he will start out on the perimeter with the ball in his hands, take it inside, put his shoulder into a guy. And then when he does start to get slowed down, he can finish with a spin move near the basket. And when he ties it all together, it looks really, really impressive. Yeah. When it works out, definitely. 
That, that doesn't didn't, didn't work out really at all times in the NCAA, but we'll, we'll get to that later. And we're talking about his weaknesses. So uh, another major selling point for Paulo is his court vision, passing offensive IQ, which is definitely good for his position. I wouldn't call him elite necessarily as a passer, but he's fully capable when he generates those mismatches. If somebody comes to help, he's likely to find a teammate, find an open teammate. He's a willing and able passer. So you have a guy who you can find mismatches for on the perimeter. He can go in, somebody's going to have to help, and he's probably going to find an open guy. Yep, absolutely. There's a you'll you'll hear about it when other people do draft coverage on Paulo Banquero, but before he had a pretty substantial growth spurt, he played point guard, and you really see it. Uh, he had a really nice connection with Mark Williams, the center at Duke. Uh, he was able to when he was taken inside, he could throw it up for lobs, and they had a nice two man game there. He's a capable like pick and roll. Uh, ball handler you know I don't know how well that'll translate at the NBA but for a big it's very unique to see uh, at the collegiate level and as a role man I know statistically he was decent there are concerns there but for sure it just plays into how dynamic he is that's that's one of the big selling points and then you know we're a big fan of the drive and kick offense I think we started to see that kind of perpetuating more in the Pistons season as it went on and he is capable of making those kickout passes he when he sees that he's getting doubled, uh, he does stop and he looks for for the guy uh, who's yeah. open. So that's, yeah. that's another good sign. Absolutely. Yeah, and not only, like I said, not only able but also willing. He's, you know, you have these guys who are just going to drive in and, you know, maybe they have a good opportunity to find a teammate. Maybe they even see that teammate, but their first inclination is score. He's able to adjust off the move and make the right decision. And that's that's definitely very valuable. Uh, plays in also, as you said, uh, Tommy, to how he operates off the drive. He can really think on his feet in that capacity. Uh, also an improving shooter who in the NCAA tournament showed uh, some uh, you know, budding acuity as a pull-up guy. Uh, definitely not great uh, overall. I mean, he shot like 24% on pull-up threes throughout the season, 9 of 38, uh, and did a lot of pull-up two-point shooting as well, uh, only around 40%. But, uh, you know, he's got possible potential as a three-level scorer. Uh, I'd say maybe as a two-level scorer is likelier. Uh, it's very, very difficult in the NBA to be a good pull-up two-point shooter on any sort of volume. Very difficult. Uh, not just because of the defense, but also it's just a really hard shot to make a, uh, to make efficient. No, like the average effective field goal percentage in the, in the NCAA is this last season uh, – in general, just significantly lower than what you find in the NBA. So, but potential to create offense also in the post, it, that, that was kind of a, a part of his game. He didn't utilize all that much, but probably will in the NBA uh, with his size and strength and also can draw doubles there. He passes well out of doubles. You know, that's definitely a strength. And uh, I feel like he could be an overall, you know, his ceiling as an overall versatile creator who attacks from the perimeter on high volume, especially against mismatches and uh, ideally can either score or dish to his teammates. And if he becomes a pull-up threat from three, that'll really enhance his game. Right. I'm glad that you mentioned the shooting. Uh, I listed it as a positive. Like uh, He has a very dynamic scoring profile. There's a variety of shot attempts, both spot-up and iso. And he's very comfortable taking shots from all over the floor, including mid-range. Now you can see when we get to his negatives, that it's kind of a problem at times. But the fact that he's willing to take those shots and you know he seems pretty fearless and confident about it, I think you can list that as a positive. And then, like you said, he was genuinely improving as a floor spacer and a three-point shooter. I, I don't think he – I want to say he finished around 34% on threes on the season. But uh, over the last, you know, 
five, 10 games, he was starting to look better and he was trending in the right direction. Now, whether that carries into the NBA, obviously that's yet to be seen, but you know, you can definitely credit him for, you know, the sheer amount of, he's a very dynamic player, bottom line. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, he, uh, he was inconsistent earlier in the season and was not taking many threes. His volume increased significantly in, in the NCAA tournament. And he didn't do all that well on, you know, when he was, when he was guarded on three pointers, um, pretty poorly actually, but, um, his percentage jumped significantly when he was unguarded, uh, to the tune of 25 of 59. Um, yeah, 29 of 59, uh, from, excuse me, 25 of 59 from the field and uh, from three on those unguarded three point attempts, which is, you know, run upwards of 42%. That's good. Uh, again, inconsistent. And then again, didn't really attempt them on volume until the NCAA tournament, uh, aside from rare examples. Right. So, and that, yeah, that actually transitions me straight into like one of his key negatives. If you have anything more to say about Paulo in terms of what he does well, if not, we can move on to that. Yeah, I, I think we've, we've approached it pretty well. Uh, just a guy who could serve as, if things play out right in his development, could serve as a, ineffective creator from the perimeter and if he does well enough maybe a guy you can base an offense around but again that's that's if he if he develops well enough it's hard to find those guys right absolutely you mentioned that is his three-point shooting and his jumpers in, in general like he shot a lot worse on them when they were contested and that is certainly a concern that i have especially going into the nba because one of the big question marks with paulo is uh the athleticism because when you watch him, I mean, at the collegiate level, he looks like a fantastic athlete, and he is, obviously. But at the NBA, I have real concerns about how his game translate because translates because his he lacks burst uh, to blow by guys in a straight line. He lacks the vertical to go up and be a lob threat. He, he I think he's position locked as a four because he doesn't have the the he can't really the protect upper, the rim. Yeah, right. He's he's not a good rim protector, and he doesn't have the vertical spacing to be a lob threat consistently. You know, you'll see in his highlight reels that he he can get up, but a lot of times it's when he has an open driving lane, uh, or it's like you know, a transition opportunity, and that's kind of yeah. like the Isaiah Stewart thing. Yeah, definitely. It, I feel like if he were a good NBA athlete, I mean, he would far and away be the the number one pick. I mean, there yeah, would be could any, play the five. Yeah, absolutely. Not only playing the five. I mean, if he were just a good NBA athlete, uh, because you know, you've got in that case, like a guy who might comp to the rookie Blake Griffin or Blake Griffin with his athleticism, not as good. I mean, Blake was an elite, elite, elite athlete coming into the NBA. I mean, he had a rare combination of size and strength and agility and, and basketball IQ, but uh, we'll get to that in the comps. But, uh, you know, maybe like if you had, if you had like a Chet who weighed 25 pounds more, maybe, you know, it'd be real competition for the number one overall pick. But as things currently stand, if Paul were a good NBA athlete, I would rate him number one, uh, period. And I would feel right. a lot better about his fit on the Pistons, but a definitely below average NBA half court athlete. Don't be fooled. I would advise people don't be fooled by how people look in transition or how they look when they have a real runway in the half court. And half court athleticism, you're going to spend a vast majority of your time in the half court. Like we'll talk about Keegan Murray later on. Maybe the Pistons don't do well, you know, don't place highly in the lottery. He's another player who looks great in transition, but in the half court, nowhere near as good. So. Yeah, below average half court athlete in terms of burst, in terms of top speed, in terms of leaping, uh, definitely plays below the rim and relies a lot more on his strength and agility rather than explosiveness and speed. And uh, 
that brings up for me some concerns about if his ISO offense will translate. Uh, but right, also, exactly, yeah. Also, because yeah, I mean, in his ISO offense, and again, that was his bread and butter, and it's high difficulty stuff that sometimes didn't work well in the NCAA games in which he disappeared. It's going to be far more difficult against the defenses in the NBA that are drastically better, uh, much better athletes, uh, much stronger, and NBA defenses which are immensely better than what you face in the NCAA. Right. There was a story from Kate actually this se- earlier this season where he talked about how when he got to the league, he finally felt like his length really mattered because the the that extra athleticism length of the NBA, like it really takes away a lot of the that that little space that you have. Like he was talking about how at the college level, he didn't really feel like it was all that functional. It was helpful, but it was it didn't really matter as much. I feel like what happens with some players, especially like subpar athletes like Paulo, uh, when they when they make that transition, you know, they really struggle with that next level. We saw it with uh, Jaden Hardy in the G League Ignite because, you know, in the in high school, he was this fantastic four-level scorer and he was able to get to the rim. Yeah, but once he started to, playing against just, grown men. Yeah, just to break in, four-level score is a new term for guys oh, yeah. <laughs> who can do, who, who can pull up from far beyond the 3.1. Right. Yeah, but when he, when, it, and when he got to the Ignite and he tried to, you know, take it inside, he really, really struggled with the athleticism. He, was, he had a really tough time getting a shot off and he started to improve. And I'm not saying that Paulo can't improve. Um, he certainly plays with a fair level of IQ and creativity, and maybe he is able to compensate for it, but I think there is going to be a serious learning curve there. So I, that's a real concern for me, uh, especially when it pertains to the athleticism and the discussion there. Yeah, I absolutely. do worry about that. Yeah. If his ISO offense doesn't translate, his ceiling drops significantly. And yeah, I, I think it, it, cannot be emphasized enough the enormous leap in the level of competition in the NBA. Enormous. I mean, margins in the NBA are tiny. Like if a guy is just a little bit more athletic than you are, if a guy can get his shot off more quickly and it isn't as easily blocked and so on and so forth. I mean, margins are tiny. And the number of guys in the NBA who can efficiently create an isolation and if we're, yeah, it's just, it's very small. This is a very difficult thing to do in the NBA. And right. I, yeah, I, I think that just that has to be emphasized. It is a very difficult form of offense to make efficient. Almost everybody in the league who can do so has been an all-star or is an all-star uh, and has some particular quality. And aside from like Luca uh, and maybe one other guy, I'm forgetting. Uh, that strikes me. I'm forgetting one other person. All of them are above average athletes. Like athleticism is very helpful quality to have. So uh, he might struggle to contribute if his ISO offense doesn't translate. He'll find ways, I'm sure, but his ceiling will drop dramatically. Right. I'm concerned about certainly the scoring, getting his jump shots off, but there's another aspect. It's um, He's he's a very physical player, and he likes to take it inside, but even at the college level, uh, he had this problem with getting all the way to the hoop. And this is a guy who is very big, very strong, very athletic for the, for the NCAA, but oftentimes he got stopped short on drives. So if at the college level, you know, if regular guys are stopping him short and he has to finish with length and hook shots – what is he going to do when he gets to the NBA? Like, is he going to get pushed out far, farther? Is he going to get stopped like way farther out? You know, I, I do worry about his ability because right now he's relying a lot on, you know, this footwork that we mentioned. It is a strength of his. He is a shifty, creative player and, you know, very creative on drives. He, he is able to generate these advantages, but once these guys recover, are they going to be able to stop him before he's able to get off a good shot? I have a real, real concerns there. Yeah, absolutely. In, in the NCAA at times, you saw him get stopped short and he would resort to like a turnaround mid-range jumper. 
Yeah, that's I, it's an ugly shot. You don't want him to take that in the in the league. In his highlight reels, you're going to see him knock that shot down. He takes it a lot because he gets stopped short a lot. And, you know, it's it looks nice when he makes it, but the percentages don't back up that shot. And it is incredibly unlikely and incredibly difficult to make that, you know, yeah. efficient offense. Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to be something I think he'll need in the in the NBA because against these defenses, I think he's going to have some trouble getting in the rim. And right. like the turnarounds pull up two pointer is a very low efficiency shot. Like Kevin Durant would have issues with that shot. And he's arguably the most versatile shooter, one of the most versatile shooters the NBA has ever seen, maybe the most versatile. On Paulo and pull up two pointers in the NCAA, 40%. The NBA is going to be a lot more difficult. I mean, he's taking these jumpers from very close to the ground. Uh, they will be easily blocked, uh, or he'll shoot them through very close contests. That's a tough shot, and I feel like mid-range offense is going to be important for him. The odds are against him in terms of making that efficient. So that's definitely a trouble. The the, uh, the other thing I, I think, and I know we agree on this, is the questions about his off-ball utility. And this is an area in which if he were a, a, a considerably better athlete, those concerns would go away. Unfortunately, he is what he is as an athlete. So, yeah, I know I'm talking at length here, but... Uh, oh, another thing to say about getting to the rim. The fact that the guy plays below the rim uh, makes it considerably more likely he's going to get swatted a fair amount uh, by by NBA caliber rim protectors. But uh, off the ball, it, he doesn't have the height uh, to uh, really run the pick and roll or, or the athleticism to to compensate for that. You see that with Isaiah Stewart. Paulo is a somewhat better leaper, but it's real tough to do that if you can't play above the rim and you're not tall enough to compensate. Really nerfs you as a role man. Like you said, Tommy is not a lob threat and is an off ball mover. I don't think he's, I think he's going to have a tough time finding separation. So I think he's going to be limited as an off ball player. Right. Just going back to the fit, and maybe this is really more of a general NBA fit. I don't really know what you do for the center situation or what's his ideal fit because, like I said, he had a real, he had a real actual decent connection with Mark Williams, who is a general or a, a traditional center like a big guy who can throw down lobs, but yeah, at the same great time, man, like huge right. man and a pretty yes. good leaper. Yep. And then, but the, if, at the same time, like if you want Paulo to have maximum space and the best chance at maybe getting all the way to the rim, maybe you do want a spacing five. That's, that's a trade off there, but it's, it's kind of the consequence of having a guy who is, you know, pretty on ball and demands pretty high usage to be effective and, you know, isn't all that athletic. So it's, it's yeah, just it's another, definitely. another wrinkle. Absolutely. Like, in terms of getting to the baskets and, and drawing double teams and passing through those, I mean, Cade found this at the NBA level. He's just that passing lanes in the NBA are less and they close really fast. And so if you have a center, and, and we saw this briefly with, uh, for example, last season with Blake Griffin. Uh, last season's Blake Griffin with the Pistons was very bad. But he would try his, his double team post up. And um, basically, maybe this isn't quite as comparable, but... Uh, yeah, this isn't quite as comparable. Whatever the case. I mean, if a center comes to help and that center is long and he comes from the direction of the open man, which he very well may do because defenders in the NBA for the most part are pretty darn good. Well, compared to the NCAA anyway, then Paulo no, no longer has an open lane. But yeah, the center, I mean, I, I think having a spacing center will be very important for him to, to to really do his style of offense. You also want a center who can catch lobs. And because he's not the greatest defender and might be a switch liability, you want to I mean, you just want a defender in general who's going to be decent, and the Pistons are really working toward being a good defensive team in the front office. A number of centers who are lob threats, spacing, uh, able to space the floor and able to play good defense, very small. Like, very, very small. Right. 
And just to go back to what you said about like these advantages and these passing lanes closing really quickly, I think that is going to be a little bit of a problem or at least an area for improvement because I think at times he was a little bit of a ball stopper. You know, he, a lot of times he was able to make the quick read, but there were times where he just, you know, he's a slow, methodical player. He takes time to read uh, the defense. And, you know, when you take that moment to figure out where the open man is, a lot of times whatever advantage existed, it closes up. And now you're just, you know, you're getting mobbed. Maybe you're off balance. And Paul's a big guy, but, uh, you know, that's it's still the NBA. He's going to have to deal with that physicality, and that's going to be part of the learning curve for him. Yeah, and like I said, I, I don't think Paulo Paulo is not an elite passer. He's a good passer for his position, and he has very high offensive IQ, and he can react on the fly. But like you said, it, and like, yeah, I can take him that extra second. And like I said, margins in the NBA are very small, and defenses, like not only defenders, but defenses are so much better than they are in the NCAA. But just going right. back, yeah, going back to the off-ball utility, it's like there's. I think there should be major concerns about the fact that he's going to lose a tremendous amount without the ball in his hands. He's basically going to be reduced to a spot-up shooter uh, because if you can't, if you're not a lob threat, um, if you can't be the role man, and, and most importantly, there are plenty of guys, plenty of power forwards who can't do those things. But you know, you get power forwards if they can't do those things, or in general, for the most part, these are guys who can beat their defenders off the ball. Uh, break into the interior and finish above the rim. And I don't think Paolo is going to be able to find off ball separation in the NBA. Right. Yep. I would agree with you. And it's, it's really that simple. Um, I don't have a ton more to say. I mean, I would round out the offense by saying just that, you know, his shooting splits are not great. Uh, like he does a lot of things. And again, the highlight reels are very impressive, but the, the shooting splits really don't back up or they don't warrant that kind of usage. Uh, certainly not the NBA, like where efficiency is king. So he's going to have to work on that. If he is going to be a dynamic three-level shot maker, shot creator, whatever you want to say, he has to shoot better pretty much from everywhere. Uh, like yeah. I think he was decent around the rim, but again, you know, he's a lot of what he's doing is just based off of, you know, the fact that he is bigger and longer and stronger than some of these guys. And he like that's not to take away from the skill that he has. Like he is a he has great touch around the rim, but like you said, you know, the sen- the centers, the defense, it's all going to get a lot better. So he's going to have to compensate for that, especially a guy who is so reliant on shiftiness and up fakes, whatever advantage, like he's in the NBA in his rookie year, he's going to get swatted like hard, at least a few times at the rim. And he's going to have to learn to play around that. So that's another concern there. Yeah. And just going, I, I agree. And going back to his off ball movement, I, I think you should, I think it should be stressed that off ball movement is a skill. I mean, it, it isn't not a skill. It's an, it's a major asset, like yeah. guys who can, who can lose their man. Uh, I mean, it not only generates possibly an open, open opportunity for them, it unhinges the defense. Like the defense has to act to compensate. Some guys you have to throw basically double. You have to have two defenders really focusing on them. They're really good off-ball movers. You know, gravity is also a skill, but uh, off-ball movement is important. Like, so, I mean, the inability to do that is is an issue, uh, particularly if you're a perimeter player. And you always want to have the most options you can for unhinging a defense. Uh, all that that is the point of of any offense uh, of course i mean that goes without saying and player assets and coaching but player assets go a major way toward being able to do that so uh, yeah I, I think another weakness that we should go over is his defense yeah absolutely it's i mean people saw it and kind of noticed it in the michigan state game that they played in in the tournament there were plays where he just kind of stopped trying really hard and just moments where he wasn't engaged defensively so I mean, this is really more about fit with the Pistons, but 
you know, there's there's questions about his culture fit. I mean, like the Pistons right now. Well, we'll save that for when we get to yeah, that. Definitely. But uh, it's it's just worth mentioning that defensively, he's not like you said, not a great rim protector. Uh, he's not the most agile. I don't, I don't think he slides all that well. But yeah, no, the defense is not going to be one of his calling cards. Yeah, I have real questions about his defensive IQ too. Maybe this is something he can be taught, but even positioning to stop a player from taking a pull up three. I mean, it's like that position even then was poor, but. I think, well, first of all, I, th- I think if you're the Pistons and you have a, and you have the goal of setting up a strong defensive starting five, you can kiss that goodbye if you're feeling Field and Bola. Not just his defensive intensity, which could change, though I think it's kind of a red flag that you have players in college in the NCAA who are, d- despite being very young, are consummate competitors on both ends. So uh, I also think it could be a switch liability against faster guards. He doesn't move his feet too well. And... Yeah, that's that's an issue. It's a weakness. So yep. yeah, and I, I think finally, and this is slightly, this is definitely back to offense. I think he's a player that who will not synergize well with any other player who's going to operate a lot with the ball in his hands. So yeah, so uh, yeah. we can yeah move on to projected ceiling, projected floor. Uh, what do you see his ceiling as? Well, I have him come to a guy who was all NBA and you know all star, but this is all contingent on you know, everything coming together. And this is kind of like, you know, honestly, it's more of a closing statement than anything. But, you know, Paulo has a lot of tools. He's a very dynamic player. He does a lot of things. And if he actually plays well enough and shoots well enough to warrant the usage that he needs to be everything that he can be, yeah, you know, he's he's a great player. And especially in the tournament, like he, he did a lot for his draft stock in the tournament because, you know, you got to see a lot of good things when he is playing heavily on ball. But uh, again, it's, it's all just going to come down to the the shooting splits in my mind, because I think he does a lot of things well, but when he's not taking good shots and he's not making a lot of shots, he's, he really is a detriment to his teams. But again, if it all comes together, I think all-star, you know, multi-time all-star is, is in the cards. Uh, but uh, again, this is, he, I, I would say that he probably has the furthest to go to reach that or to reach his ceiling just because he ha- he does a lot of things. Uh, like I said, most dynamic. He has the beginnings of the most or uh, the beginnings of a lot of skills, certainly more than the other two guys in the top three, but uh, he has a long way to go on a lot of these. So yeah. Yeah. I, probably all-star is where I would maybe like maybe an all NBA guy. If everything comes together. Yeah, I, I think his ceiling is as a guy who can operate with the ball in high volume from the interior in the post, can score at least at two levels. Uh, the first level being pull up threes uh, and play make for his teammates, really take advantage of that gravity. Uh, and I think that's what he's going to have to do in order to to be at his best. Because I, I think his best role again is a guy who really his offense plays around him to allow him to maximize what he can offer. Uh, his floor for me is a guy who can really only operate well on the ball, but isn't worthwhile in that capacity. And that is yep. a problem player. Like that's, that's the guy who's not shooting all that well, and he's not having a good time dealing with the defense and the, the, the these very small windows. You know, if you, if you, like me, that might be Paul Bancaro, you know, when he, in his first year or two in the league, but if by year three, he still hasn't figured it out, I think you have real concerns. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I'm trying to think of a guy who really can only operate on the ball but just isn't worthwhile, uh, you know, whatever. Um, so on to comps. I know that uh, that you have one you really like. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, it's it's Blake Griffin on the Pistons, and I think this is one that you've probably seen by now. I, I do like this comp. Uh, it kind of 
pivots around like his heavy use of shiftiness. And this is when I talk about Blake Griffin on the Pistons, I'm talking about, you know, that maybe that 18, 19 season. If you watch the highlights from you know, that season and Paulo's oh, highlights. Definitely that season. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, that's, that's the one where, where Blake was at his best. You know, he was, you know, he was a very creative ball handler, a very uh, dynamic player, heavy use of shiftiness and creative ball handling to compensate for lack of burst. That's a decent comp right there. Um, not a great three-point shooter, but good enough to warrant coverage and closeouts. And then this, this, he had some athleticism if he had a runway. It's not a perfect uh, comp in my mind. I think Paulo relies less on post-ups and more on footwork. Uh, but there are some rough similarities. And there, honestly, Paulo is a very unique player. Like you, like you were kind of uh, struggling to you know, find a guy who plays that way. Uh, it's, it's because those guys really don't exist unless they are really, really good. So it's it's a risk to take Paulo if he doesn't uh, get that good. But I, I do like the the 2019 Blake Griffin. Comp. Yeah, I, I think he could get there if again he has to be able to shoot those pull up threes. That was an essential part of Blake's ability, uh, just to score, but also to get to the basket. That the basically players had to defend him very closely. Right, it warranted and, the double coverage. Yeah, not just the double coverage uh, because Blake generally wasn't doubled on the perimeter, but. Yeah, that, that'll be necessary. I think he'll be, have to be a guy who can straight line drive and get there. I think that actually the post game will be important for him if he can draw doubles there. Uh, that was also a big part of Blake's game. So I don't think Blake uh, Pistons, I think Blake Pistons Blake is a decent comp. I think Julius Randle perhaps as well. Um, but uh, because Randle in his one good season, I mean, he hard regressed the season to say the least. But he was a guy who could shoot the three well. Uh, who could shoot decently well from mid-range and could get to the basket based on just the threat of those and was a pretty good passer. But, you know, when his shooting went away, I mean, he's, he's become a noticeably bad player. But I, I think that the, in both of those guys, like Griffin really Im- imposed the ceiling on the Pistons because he had to, his game required him to dominate possession and his game required, and he was top dog, I mean, in every conceivable capacity on offense, like no doubt about it. And, and if you put another player next to him who had to have the ball, I mean, Blake, like when Reggie Jackson was running the pick and roll, Blake got injured late or was kind of sort of injured late in the season. And Reggie took on more of more responsibility and it reduced Griffin to a maximum salaried spot up shooter. That's a huge loss in utility. Right. So, uh, you know, that's, that's the thing with Paulo. I mean, you're really going to have to play around him and you're going to have to have the right guys around him. And you're going to have to hope that he's good enough to, to warrant that role. Exactly. And that probably takes us to the fit with the Pistons. Well, what I want to reiterate, just when it comes to off-ball fit, I want to, I think a, a, a very good illustrative example is Clippers Griffin versus Pistons Griffin. So Clippers Griffin was an absolutely elite athlete. I mean, I'm sure plenty of listeners remember his just insane dunks. So and it, he was explosive off the ball. He really went where he pleased. He was a perpetual lob threat. I mean, this guy was a pretty good off. And he he formed a very good pick and roll duo with Chris Paul because, you know, there were just all sorts of options. Paul Chris Paul could find him on the ground. Chris Paul could find him off the lob. And even Blake could pass off the roll. You can do that when you're not athletic. But his athleticism was really what made him a good off-ball player, even when he couldn't shoot. So uh, he could play next to Chris Paul in that uh, capacity. He was still better when he was allowed to dominate possession. He was number three in MVP voting in 2013-2014. That was a season in which Chris Paul missed a significant amount of time and Griffin shined. But he didn't lose a ton of utility when he was off the ball. He could play well with Chris Paul, who admittedly is just a, you know, of course, spectacular all-around player, especially at that stage of his career. 
Uh, when he went to Pistons, Griffin, he lost his athleticism, and that really hurt his off-ball utility. Couldn't serve as a role man, was not an explosive off-ball mover, was not a lob threat. So I, I think that's just illustrative of how Paulo is going to struggle off the ball, particularly if he's playing next to a high possession player. And that definitely brings us to the fit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to say that it's not ideal, uh, it's probably, <laughs> maybe it's a bit of an understatement, at least in our opinion. Um, we definitely don't want to give him the usage that he would need because it would take away from Cade, who definitely deserves the high usage, definitely deserves the ball in his hands. And if you're trying to choose between those guys, it's going to become a balancing act that I don't really want to yeah. try because you want to avoid that. Cade deserves it. You know, he was phenomenal this season. Yeah, definitely. So what teams really want to avoid? Um, like it, it's important for the any team to be more than the sum of its parts. And teams with just spectacular shooters can make it work, like multiple spectacular shooters. Just kind of like, you know, I get the ball and you get the ball. Though these guys are generally excellent shooters off the ball anyway. But like the, the Nets, if they'd had all three of their big three last season, I think would have been pretty much unstoppable. <laughs> but like... This is where it comes down to, like, it's not just talent. It's actual on-court value. And I feel like Cade, who is at his best on the ball, and is, will be better off the ball than, than Paulo, but is definitely at his best on the ball. And Paulo, who I think is going to be very short on off-ball utility. Yeah, it, it's a balancing act. Like, I get the ball, and then you get the ball, and then I get the ball, and then you get the ball, and very little synergy when you have players who are just going to lose that much off the ball. So, poor value. I would say, and and that's going to be an issue, probably. Right, right. If Paulo ever became a good off-ball player, like he became a good three-point shooter, that good three-level score, he could be a good secondary ball handler or relief ball handler, uh, and then he could earn that usage that he probably needs. But again, even yeah, if even he then. did get that good, yeah, yeah, it's it's Kate is just he's that guy, you know. I would rather have a guy who's like an elite three-point shooter. I think the way that I've been kind of thinking about it lately has been we have our guy who creates advantages. He could probably use a relief ball handler, so not a guy who's going to take the ball out of his hands a ton. But what we need now are guys who can finish the plays that Cade creates. And Paulo being, you know, not a great three-point shooter, not a great shooter in general, not a lob threat, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me if you're really high on, you know, the, the Luka-type role for Cade. And that high, high usage heliocentric guy. So I don't love the fit there. Um, if if you like, let's like you were alluding to. If you are a big fan of just taking the most talented guy, um, this is one where you're going to be mashing the fit together and just kind of hoping for the best. You know, maybe yeah. there is a way that those guys develop really good chemistry mm. and they do make it work. How? I it's exactly. I'm not, I don't see it naturally happening. It's, yeah, it would I, take a lot of creativity and adjusted roles, you know, guys yeah. getting good at skills that they're really not known for. Well, I just I just don't think he has the assets to do it. I think even if it becomes a high percentage spot up shooter, you're still losing an enormous amount of of what makes him a good player. Like an enormous amount. Uh, again, guy who's probably going to have trouble getting off ball separation, who's not going to, you know, blast his way around like an off ball screen, get the ball and finish above the rim. Uh, not a guy who's going to even be a lob threat. Cuts are not a big source of offense in the NBA, and I think he'll have trouble with those. Like when we're talking, not a big uh, source of offense. Guys who aren't centers, and centers are just generally lurking along the baseline or catching lobs. Uh, like the the non-center, aside from Giannis, who averages the most points, is Aaron Gordon, who is highly athletic, an explosive off-ball mover, definitely a lob threat, and playing next to Jokic, who is going to find cutters better than anybody else in the league. So. 
I think even if Cade is not playing that totally heliocentric role, just the fact that he loses a lot off the ball and that Paulo, I think, will lose even more makes it it's going to make it impossible to really find a good value playing them together. And like, I think if you have to say, well, if this, this, and this happens, you know, maybe the Pistons could make it a good fit kind of says it's bad. You know, the fit is, is pretty likely to be bad, even if he's a really good spot up shooter. So uh, also I would say you're introducing a third athlete to the starting lineup uh, alongside yeah. <laughs> Caden Bay. And that hurts like that. You do not want to render yourself with below average athleticism on a lineup wide level. Like that hurts. Right. And we, I also wanted to mention, this is kind of switching gears, but as long as we're talking about uh, the fit with those guys, like this is like the culture. Let's just start there. Um, Paulo, not known as a great defender. Uh, he's not known for his defensive intensity. And like we said, I don't, I don't think he's a very versatile defender and the Pistons were very switch heavy this past season. So like if they are known as a team who's going to, to you know, allow every switch to happen, I think Paulo could be the, potential target of like like you said faster guards and you don't want that you're going to put a lot of pressure on whoever the five is he was targeted um, at times on the pick and roll in, in the ncaa like with some right. success right so that's that's just another factor there so again just like as far as like natural fit with the pistons i think what we should be looking for is guys who are you know versatile defenders uh, and then can finish plays that kate is creating i don't think paul really does either of those things naturally there is a like a draft philosophy, you know, just take the best player available, you know, figure out the fit later. Um, the idea of, you know, we're not good enough to be shooing away ceiling or, you know, high level talent. But in this case, you know, given that we have our franchise cornerstone and we have a, a specific vision for him, I think that you should maybe adjust that a little bit to build around that guy, uh, yeah, build a cohesive it's... team. You know, like you said, Mike, a, a team that's greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah, it's again, it comes down to not just talent, it comes down to on court value. And like, I think it can become a little, I think it'd be easy to miss the forest for the trees and the, the, like the forest being on court value. You look at Paulo and say, man, this guy could really be really good in the NBA at creating offense. But and like the Pistons need talent, but Cade is, is there. He's going to be the primary ball handler. He's presumably not going anywhere. You're going to play around him. And I just want to go back to athleticism. I mean, having good athletic, not at least not having poor athleticism on a, on a lineup wide scale is very important. I mean, the ability to get off ball separation is very nice. The ability to run faster than your, or at least as fast as your opponents, for example. I mean, that's very nice to have. It hurts if you don't have it. We saw the Pistons like early in the season play against, the, <clears throat> excuse me, play against the Cavaliers. And the Pistons were just fielding a super slow off ball lineup. Uh, just a super slow lineup in general between Cade, Hayes, Bay, Stewart. Like Grant was the only good off-ball mover, the only really explosive athlete against the Cavaliers who are just a super athletic team. And they were running circles around the Pistons. But when it comes to Pistons, just, you know, the, the philosophy of the team, I feel like Paulo's not really a Pistons guy, like you said, culture, but also you talk about, you listen, to, and switching, like the Pistons may not always run a switch scheme, but I also just think that they really want to field a, a strong defensive lineup, and Paulo's not going to be able to do that. Like you look at Boston's lineup with a bunch of just good defenders, pretty athletic guys, just high IQ defenders. And like you listen to, to Casey and Weaver talk about how they really want to have a, a strong defensive identity, uh, you know, front court athleticism is important. Um, maybe you can get away with that just at center. And also, you know, you really want to play with the ball in Kate's hands. 
So maybe they deviate from that, but it's like, how do you make that work? Like even, you know, exclusive of everything else or not exclusive of everything else because Cade's going to have the ball and Boncaro projects to lose so much off of it. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything more to add on uh, on any of the fronts? Uh, no, not really. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think uh, I think we both have uh, have gone through. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, what about honestly, you? honestly, yeah. All, all I would say to close it out, I guess, would be that Paulo has the beginnings of a lot of things that make him a potentially very useful and dynamic player. But I don't like his fit on the Pistons. Uh, everything that he you know, his ceiling, it's all contingent on a lot of shooting issues being fixed. And again, the fit with Cade, it's not great in my mind. I would probably put him, I've gotten a little higher on him uh, as I've done my research on him more for this episode specifically. Like we watched him all throughout the year. You can start to see, especially like those late improvements on the shooting, you can start to see more of it. But uh, I, I still don't think I would put him top five on my board. I think right now he'd probably be six or seven. Yeah, and I mean that might sound crazy, but uh, yeah, I agree. I, I just I, I I really don't like his fit on the Pistons, and I also think that as I said about his ceiling, he's really going to it, it's really going to depend, of course, on development. But I think he's going to be best as the primary option on his team, where he can just play on the ball as much as he wants, and the offense plays around him, and that's not going to happen on the Pistons, needless to say. And now a quick word from our sponsor. The NBA playoff action is nonstop at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. This week, new customers can bet just $5 on any team to win and get $150 in free bets if they do. Looking to turn a small bet into a big payday during the NBA playoffs? The DraftKings same game parlays, you can do just that. Create your own parlay by combining multiple bets like which team will win, total threes made, total rebounds, and more, and boom, you have a shot at an even bigger payout. Right now, all customers can place the same game parlay with three or more legs and get a free bet Back up to $25 if one leg doesn't hit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TBPN. Bet $5 on any NBA team to win their game and get $150 in free bets if they do. That's promo code TBPN. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. All right. Why don't we move on to some listener-submitted questions to close out the episode. So, uh, number one, if... So number one, it's generally considered a weaker draft. Could we get more easily back into the first this year? And if Grant has moved, what picks would you look to get for him, assuming it's mostly picks as a return? Yeah, I, I don't know which picks. I haven't taken a look at uh, the lottery order and everything. I think, uh, well, no, I won't even say it. But uh, I definitely think it's going to be easier to get into the first round this year. Totally. There are a few guys that I really, really like. One of the guys is Oshai Abaji. Uh, but he's, you know, just within the discussion of, you know, who fits best around Cade. Guys who are like floor spacers. I think some of those guys exist. Athletic. This is a weird draft. It's a bunch of wings that can't shoot, a bunch of bigs who aren't super athletic, and then a bunch of guards who can't shoot. So that's why <laughs> it's easier to get in uh, or get another high pick. It's just because this draft isn't seen as super talented. But yeah, there's usually, you know, even in drafts that are looked at as not so talented usually there are a few guys who just way outshine the expectations i think weaver's philosophy of just bringing in the guys who work the hardest has worked really well so far so i'm optimistic on them both acquiring another first rounder and making a decent pick with it. yeah i think it's going to be drastically easier to move into the first this season for two reasons number one the pistons have a bona fide trade asset and grant and it, really there are multiple teams in the first round who could be interested i don't feel able to predict it but also last year, I mean, that was a really, really strong draft. Like even yeah. out, even outside of the top 10, teams were not easily parting with first round picks. So 
yeah, I, I think that it's going to be considerably easier to get back into the first. Uh, there are multiple scenarios with multiple teams. It's just so hard to predict because Grant, I think, it projects to be a fairly... I mean, he's an attractive trade asset, like a very attractive trade asset. And yeah, he projects to be pretty highly sought after. Who knows? Maybe that won't happen. It didn't happen at the deadline, according to Weaver. But it's also possible he'll stick around, depending on whom the Pistons draft. They don't want to, and it's been said, they don't want to have the starting lineup be all young players. And Grant's, by all accounts, is uh, he's quiet, but he's very well-liked, and he's very much a veteran presence. Yeah, if, right. good, if there's no good offers, just keep the guy. I'm not yeah. opposed. Yeah, definitely. So uh, number question number two, uh, which bottom teams do you believe, bottom as in far back in, uh, in the draft lottery, do you believe would not pick Chet number one? That's a tough one. I think Houston would definitely pick him number one. Orlando would definitely pick him number one. Bamba has been a real disappointment. He was drafted for his defensive upside, and he's been nothing special there. Also, his compete level is not good. <laughs> uh, Okay, so you would draft in number one. Uh, Indiana possibly would not, depending on what they want to do with Turner moving forward. Uh, but even I think they would give him a look and, and just trade Turner. Just trade that Turner's trade value may be significantly, may not be great. He's very injury prone, already has a bunch of lower body injuries, has had significant injuries to both feet in the last uh, two out of the last three seasons. Uh, you know, this year, I don't remember which one it was, but in 2019, 2020, also had a significant one. Uh, so, geez, even in the lottery. Um, yeah, after that, it's Portland. Yeah. They would take him. Second. Yeah, they would take him. Probably Absolutely. He'd be, he'd be great for Portland. Um, yeah. Cleveland's, maybe Cleveland. I mean, if they were to jump from 14, it's not the bottom of the league, but if they were to jump from 14 to 1, oh, God. which is an enormously low. It's Can a, you a imagine zero, Jabari on that team? No, it, it's a zero point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's a 0.5% <laughs> chance. And I think still, Cleveland, yeah, I, I don't see any God, situation. That's a terrifying amount of length in defense. Yeah, I don't think there's any situation in which Cleveland would draft him for obvious reasons. So uh, I would say there is no team uh, which is going to be high in the lottery odds, which uh, that wouldn't take him number one, unless they just really liked Boncaro better. I don't think any team would pass up Chet for Jabari Smith. I would pass up Chet for Jabari Smith. Okay, well, fair enough. (laughs) Did you think it's likely that the Pistons would do it? No, I think there's articles coming out now like with inside information that indicate that Chet is their guy. Yeah, so... It's possible that Orlando would go with Boncaro. I think they would be the likeliest team to go with Boncaro over Chet. That's the only scenario I can think of, actually. you know, I, I know I said Orlando would take him, but I think there's a possibility there. I don't think Houston would uh, because, you know, if they that Jalen Green is going to be a fixture there and uh, maybe Kevin Porter Jr., who knows. But Jalen will probably be a weak defender, I think, and Boncaro will be a pretty weak defender. They could fit fairly well together, but... Yeah, so I think Orlando would look at it, it, it maybe a bunk arrow. Okay, um, under what circumstances, if any, is a player like Bay a movable asset this early into a rebuild? And it's not necessarily with relation to what Bill Simmons said about Zion, which I think is outside the realm of reality. <laughs> yeah, um, well, this is an unpopular question because we all love Bay. Like he's yep. he's just uh, he's a great fit on the team. He's improved steadily. Absolute workhorse. Just puts his head down and works, but. Yeah, I mean, if uh, if the right opportunity comes along, yeah, um, maybe you do move Bay. There's like I, I do not agree at all with the notion that Bay is untouchable. Um, he's a very good player. We like him, and he could. I mean, I I've said it probably three or four times this year where he keeps redefining his ceiling to me. Like he keeps proving that he can be better than we thought he could be. 
But at the same time, you know, if a really good player comes along, yeah, yeah, I think you make that trade. I don't know who that player would be, but he's not untouchable by any stretch. Yeah, he's not. I agree, he's not untouchable, and you'd really be wanting to look at uh, at a high level star return. That would be Bay plus draft picks. I'm sure. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, this is a team that would be looking to reset with uh, in a just acquired draft stock and maybe uh, a foundational player going forward. I don't know if Bay could even be the the centerpiece of that trade. I think he's just going to be worth more to the Pistons than he than he would be to another team. Right. Yeah. yeah it's very difficult for me to think of any like trade that really makes sense. But uh, yeah. No. I, I, I the only thing I would have to say is that. Bay is movable for the right pieces, but I don't see that happening. I think he's a piston for a long time. Yeah, I agree. Uh, another one, uh, more discussing Williamson. I don't have any desire to discuss Zion. I mean, honestly, if you were made available for that kind of package, it would be because the, the Pelicans run office had concluded either this health was a lost cause or that he was going to move on to a bigger market anyway. And, and in that case, I don't think you really want to take a, a risk on Zion, whom I felt from the beginning would have to really keep his weight under optimal control in order to have any hope of being healthy through his 20s. I don't think he will be healthy through his 30s, no matter what his lower body injuries. The guy who has that blend of uh, explosiveness and size are basically inevitable, I think. And he has done an awful job of, of uh, keeping his weight at a healthy level with predictable consequences. Also a diva, which is not ideal with a player his, his age. <laughs> Um, but while you're discussing Williamson, can you discuss what it would take for us to acquire John Morant? <laughs> uh, uh, more than the Pistons could reasonably offer at this point. Yeah, I mean, there's the fact that... I have that, no idea what that would be. Yeah, Memphis is... <laughs> Memphis even have it. No, Memphis is a good team. They would have no desire to move on to John, from John Morant unless it were like maybe Cade Cunningham. And there's no way he's even being Even then. Even then, maybe not. I, I think the fit would also be awful because they're both... The job really depends on playing on the ball. Yeah. So that's poor value. Uh, okay. And let's see, I think, uh, we have one more. I mean, we have a joke question. Why is the future of this team of Brunson Sexton backcourt with Caden the three? Uh, this is a, a question from Rod Hardcastle, <laughs> a, uh, a long time listener and, uh, core member of the Pistons discord. Uh, my answer is ha ha ha. You're a funny guy. Anything I haven't done add? my research on Brunson yet, so <laughs> I'll, I'll get back to you on that one, Rod. Love yeah, <laughs> I think I don't think he was serious. Um, <laughs> and finally, why do you think so many draft experts are wrong to have Paolo in the top three? Uh, I, I, I've, um, I've, got a, I've got a strong opinion on this. I think that at this stage, sure. it's pretty much you've got a consensus top three. And if the Pistons are picking number three and, and these analysts have Von Caro, and, excuse me, have Holmgren and Smith off the board, then it's just Ben Caro by default. I, I really doubt that that uh the good draft analysts or whatever i I don't want to put it that way i i don't think at this stage that i I think you'll really see the more deeply analytical mock drafts coming out after the lottery i mean there's not a lot of effort being put into those right now not a lot of uh not a lot of deep analysis at all or hardly any from uh from the from the people i would like to read but there aren't very many of those yeah i i follow a lot of draft guys and like all throughout the year and a lot of people are really really high on bancaro and Part of that is probably that they're not approaching it the, the way that we are from like the Pistons mentality. Like a lot of why we don't like him or we don't have him very high on our boards is because we don't like the fit with Cade. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's definitely a core thing. But if you are high on maybe his ceiling, like if you're the type of person who's just like, you know, top of the lottery, you take the big swing. Uh, like we've said, Bankero's very dynamic. He has a lot of uh, the groundwork for a lot of good things. You know, a lot of it is just is, is the shooting going to come along? 
you can see a reality where Paulo becomes a very, very good player. It's just, is he going to reach that level? Yeah, exactly. On ball to warrant the type of usage that he's going to require. On another team, that's not really a concern. On the Pistons with Cade Cunningham, it is. So it's a concern. It is a concern because they want him to develop properly. But yeah, the the on ball thing is much less of a concern for most teams. Yeah, exactly. So I don't think they're, they're wrong necessarily. It's just, I think that they're, Approaching it from a different set of criteria. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, I completely agree. I think that's well put. Yeah, they, at this point, just there's very little look into team. There's very little thought as into team fit. I mean, that'll come after the lottery. Uh, all right, closing thoughts. Social media. Yeah, if you made it this far, once again, thank you guys so much for listening. We've really appreciated the engagement uh, from you guys and the reviews. We always appreciate that type of feedback. If you're on Spotify. Uh, Give us a rating if you're on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review and a a rating as well. If you're on Twitter, our handle is at ToTheBasketPod. That's T-O. And uh, definitely look for the uh, player cards that Mike is... uh, He said we. It's not we. Mike has put a ton of effort into making those. They're phenomenal looking. They're beautiful. Look into it. It's a great resource, and we hope that you guys enjoy them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's um, it, it's something I've enjoyed doing. Definitely quite a bit of work. And uh, as Tommy mentioned, yeah, it'd be great if you could subscribe to us on Twitter. Really looking to ramp up our, our presence on there and, and be more active going forward. So we will catch you in the next episode, which I believe will be about Jabari Smith. Yep, so, looks that way. Yep, we'll catch you then. 